Hello everyone and welcome to the Africa Museum podcast, the podcast channel for the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium. My name is Gabrielle Fenton and for this series I've been walking around the museum's labs, offices and archives to meet with scientists who work here. Each scientist had to choose one object that is somehow related to their research. It could be an object that they have worked on or with, or an object that simply carries a bit of their passion for their field. Some of these objects are on display in the museum, others belong to the nitty-gritty of everyday research. All of these objects have an interesting story, and that is what we are out to find out. What can a lion's teeth tell us about lion populations, and about how endangered that lion population is? This week, we meet with Natalie Smith, who is a molecular biologist, to talk about lion skulls and lion genetics. So we're here with Natalie Smith, who has been doing research on the genetic structure of different species in Africa, including lions in Tanzania. How are you, Natalie? Very well, thank you very much. Good, that's nice to hear. So, Natalie, the object that you've chosen to explore with us today is a lion's skull. Um, it's quite a big skull. It's about the size of my forearm. It's got massive teeth. Um, it, it looks uh, a little bit scary. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how this skull arrived here in the museum, when it, when it arrived here? So I assume it ar- arrived around 1920. Uh, it was probably a hunted specimen um, that was caught in the Katanga province uh, of Demo- Democratic Republic of Congo. So this one was assigned to a subspecies, Felis Leo Bergi. Uh, it's a very specific specimen because this one is a holotype, meaning that the specimen that we have here in front of us was used to describe and name this specific subspecies. Okay, so it's quite a, a special a special lion we've got here with us today. A very special one. And um, in general, why would a skull like this be of value to you as a molecular biologist? So when we are into the field of population genetic studies, we do usually investigate ancient material like this one to compare genetic diversity estimate from the past to the one that we observed using recent material. Okay, so there's loads of stuff there. You've mentioned genetic diversity, population genetics, um, but let's just start with uh, the material, so the the DNA extraction, how, how would you go about extracting DNA from the skull? It's a very special material. So you cannot just go into a standard molecular laboratory and start extraction, extracting the DNA because in ancient uh, museum material, usually the DNA is highly degraded and of poor quality uh, and also present in a, a low quantity. So to extract DNA from the skull, we usually start extracting a teeth from the jaw, and then we move to the rail. Sorry, it's not the rail. It's the Royal Belgium Institute for Natural Sciences uh, that is located in Brussels, and 
uh, we go into a very specific uh, room uh, dedicated for uh, extraction of rare and ancient DNA. So this room is equipped with positive pressure, meaning that uh, when you open the door, uh, the, the air is coming out and cannot get in. And also is equipped with UV light. So every night we start a UV light, which will degrade all the present DNA so that the room is sterile of any recent DNA material. So when we go there, first the researcher has to um, wear a special suit uh, that is sterile also, uh, with uh, glasses and also gloves. And we bring in the teeth that we will cut, we cut the root of the teeth, so that we can access uh, the material uh, inside the teeth that will be considered as preserved from any uh, contaminant DNA. Because over the time, we of course consider that there is a lot of people that touch this skull to um, make different measurements, for example, or to describe the species. So the outside of the, the skull is considered contaminated. Okay. But so what, when, you, when you did your recent research on uh, lions in Tanzania, I'm guessing you didn't go around picking uh, teeth out of uh, lions' uh, mouths? Indeed. No. Uh, what we did is uh, working in collaboration with the Tanzanian Wildlife Research Institute that is asking all the hunter, the trophy hunter, to um, collect a piece of sample, which is then deposited in this institute. And uh, with their collaboration, um, we had access to this fresh tissue that we could extract in here in our laboratory at the Africa Museum. Um, so we were talking, well, you, you mentioned genetic diversity before. So if I'm not wrong, genetic diversity is basically the amount of different uh, genetic material that exists within a species and the more diversity there is, the more likely that a species is able to adapt to, to uh, environmental changes or diseases, etc. Why can't we say, so for me, if, if there is a big lion population, and I would just assume that there's a lot of genetic diversity in this big, popu in this big lion population, why can't we... We would equation. guess this, but actually it's not true because uh, the number is not reflecting the genetic diversity of the population. So, for example, uh, if you take uh, the cheetah, uh, we now know that there is about 7,000 individuals, but actually their genetic diversity is very poor. So there was, for example, a study to prove this that uh, transferred uh, skin. Uh, from one individual to another that were unrelated. And actually, the skin transplants were not at all rejected. There was no reaction of the immune system, so which would suggest that there, this um, genetic homogeneity uh, led to a loss of, um, of immune response. Okay, so going back to the, the DNA samples... How do you go from having your DNA samples to then measuring the genetic diversity of a population? So, well, actually, before taking DNA samples and making all these uh, estimates, uh, there is a first important step uh, is to um, delimit your geographical area of investigation. So, in our study here, we focused on Tanzania because... Uh, it's a very uh, important stronghold for lion, 
uh, we can call it like a hotspot because there's still a lot of line in terms of census records, the number of lines over there. So um, the country is of high interest for the conservation of the line. Uh, so once we have delimited our area, which, which was here then Tanzania, um, we decided to, well, it's not really deciding, the, in the best case, you have to sample uh, all the location where the species is present, so where the line was present. Uh, and in the best case, at least about 20 samples per location. Uh, so once we got the samples, it took a, a while, I have to admit, it took a, a few years, because of course legal hunting is, uh, is a sporadic activity. Um, we then uh, get the samples, we extract the DNA, we amplify some specific DNA markers to evaluate, well, to estimate allele frequencies and make some stati statistical analysis, which um, uh, allowed us to highlight actually that in Tanzania we had three populations. Okay, so and these three populations is that is that what you were expecting to find when you started the study? Well, not really, not really at all, uh, because um, the localities there, so the hunting area, the national parks, etc., in uh, Tanzania, they are not delimited by fences. So we were assuming at the start that the line were free to move. And since it's a quite mobile uh, species, we were not assuming that we would find this structure. So once we have highlighted the structure, we tried to find some explanation or kind of came up with some hypothesis. And um, we actually found out that some barrier could have acted as a um, differentiation factor. Um, like uh, in the first case, um, uh, the first population that we highlight was the one really located in southern Tanzania, because of course the three populations are geographically structured. Uh, so the southern one is separated from the two other by the eastern Arc mountain, which would really well could act as a real physical barrier. Uh, between this population. Um, the interesting thing is that the two other population, one located in the north and the other in the western, so they are separated with um, uh, with nothing, it's a valley, so there is no physical barrier. Uh, we were really uh, interested to know what was happening there and actually we found out that this valley uh, is um, occupied by a high ag agricultural activities. So there is a high human pressure over there uh, because of a lot of cattle and goat and, and well, livestock. And uh, it is known that the line is, can barely coexist with humans. So even if there is no physical barrier, we assume that the high that density the barrier is with the people. The and, high and density the... of the people is acting as a barrier. Okay, and could you could you maybe tell us a bit more about the specifics of the genetic structure of the, these three different populations? How how are they different? Indeed, this true. There was some differences. So we first highlighted the three population. But uh, when we investigated the genetic diversity indices, uh, well, estimates, uh, we found that the northern one had higher risk of 
extinction actually because the diversity was lower compared to the two other and um, also the inbreeding depression uh, was well the indices of the inbreeding was uh, the highest um, so the that leads us to um, evaluate this population as at higher risk uh, while the southern one so one that is uh, located in the south had uh, quite good genetic diversity and the lowest inbreeding depression. And we think that it could be linked to um, the, the lion density um, over there because uh, in all the location in the southern region, the, this lion density uh, was quite constant. So we were uh, recording about five lines per 100 square kilometer, while in the northern it was much more heterogeneous, so uh, the density of lion was much more fluctuating. So, so the the positive note is that the the lion population in 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 the south is doing pretty well, and in terms of conservation, can can we say are they are they also at risk of being extinct, or what's the um, what, from a conservation point of view, what can we say? We can consider actually this in the southern region, the population size is still big enough uh, for nowadays. And we can therefore consider that the population in the south is uh, sustainable. So I think uh, it also is probably linked to the fact that this places is also connected by an ecological corridor to Mozambique. So maybe there is also more connection gene flow, which is um, uh, allowing uh, uh, to this population to keep a good historical, well, the, a good genetic diversity. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Natalie. Let's end on this on this note and um, have a very good day. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Africa Museum podcast. Now, a lot of the research in the museum is based on fieldwork, and notebooks are crucial to fieldwork and field trips. But what do scientists actually write in their notebooks? Next episode, we will be meeting with linguist Maud DeVos to hear all about one particular notebook from a notorious linguist in the 1950s. This series is brought to you by the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium which is a museum and a cross-disciplinary scientific institution with over 80 scientists from biology, earth sciences and social sciences conducting research on Africa and its heritage around the world.